Hello and welcome to Pod Songs, where we interview inspirational people in service to others as inspiration for a new song. Today, my co-host and musical collaborator is Matthew McDonald of Perpetual Groove, and his guest is Jonathan Lubecki. Hello, Hello Matt. How are you doing? Hey, Jack. Nice to finally meet you. Great to be here. Yeah, I know we've had a few months going back and forth on this, so I appreciate your patience and willing to uh, see it through. Nice. No, it would be worth it. Right, for sure. For sure. I'm yeah. excited about talking to Sergeant Lou Becky next week. Yeah. So you've got a great setup there. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. yeah home. This is uh, the computer that sits at the grand piano in the sunroom. So I just leave all the mics <laughs> and everything set up for... You know, when I need uh, to run it, it's, it's worked out great the last uh, couple of years over the pandemic, you know, so. You know, you're a man, I could tell instantly you're a man who knows how to set up his nest. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Whether it's a, a man cave or a studio, whatever the case may be, I, I definitely like to make a a nest at home for sure. Because you're in the middle of a tour at the moment. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. I'm touching base and then I leave again on Tuesday for two weeks. So, wow. yeah. 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 I've been checking yeah. out some of the videos and. Uh, what a fun band to be in. It is. I have a really, really great job that I've been doing a long time. I really enjoy it. So I'm thankful I still get to be doing it. We're 20 years in now. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you had a bit of a hiatus there. And uh... yeah, we took a little bit of a break for a minute, which I think is healthy for everyone to do. If we have to do it all over again. I think we'd probably just keep it to ourselves and take a couple of years off. But, you know, <laughs> and you have uh, management and publicists, you know, wanting to make everything and announce. You know, sometimes, machine, yeah, yeah, sometimes the, you know, the best decision might get a little clouded in the moment. So, but, uh, fortunately we're all still here and doing yeah. it. And no, you're, no. you're a complete troubadour from everything I've read. You've been traveling and singing all over. I had a, I had a stint at it. Yeah. But I got yeah. burnt out. Now I'm a hermit in here yeah. in Italy. And, right. What uh, part of Italy are you? I'm in the South about an hour and a half South of Napoli. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And it's you're a are you from England originally? Is that correct? I am, yeah. Yeah, I'm originally yeah. from England, yeah. Yeah. Nice. nice. How girl... long have you been in Italy now? Well, it's been 10 years. My girlfriend bought me over as a souvenir after we've been traveling and uh, bought me back, fed me up, fixed me up, and gave me... She's an architect, built me a house. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Jackpot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, how, and how's the little one? You have a new little one, is that correct? I do have a 10-month-old baby, yeah. Congrats, man. Congrats. Thank you. Thank First you. First child? It is, yeah. Yeah, changes everything, doesn't it? How many of you? I have four children. Yeah. Four. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Yeah, it's great, though. It's a happy, happy household that we have here. So. How old are they? Uh, they? It's a pretty big split. Uh, I have two older kids that are 26 and 24. Oh, wow. Um, that are both, actually, my son's over there in Europe right now. He's in the Air Force Station in Ramstein. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah, my eldest daughter is over here stateside in uh, Florida. And then uh, my wife and I, we just celebrated our 17-year wedding anniversary yesterday. And we have a 12- uh, a and 9-year-old. 12-year-old's going about 17, and 9-year-old's going on 20, from what I can tell. She's very, <laughs> very, very mature for her age, for sure. So do, you notice, do you notice the difference in the, the times, so to speak, of uh, when you... Uh, yeah. Hugely, hugely. Yeah. Uh, we're far more aware as parents now with our younger children, with just uh, the internet and social media, especially 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think my younger kids are, I don't think I'm going to let them put social media of any sorts on their phone, probably till they're an actual adult. Mm-hmm. And with, with the older kids, you know, when they were 13, 14, you know, we didn't really understand social media yet. And so they had accounts and stuff like that. And boy, if I could do that over, I, I sure would. Cause it, you know, uh, I can't imagine all of my teen years being documented online forever. <laughs> boy, would there be some embarrassing <laughs> stuff there? But uh, yeah, that's a really so, interesting social experiment. Yeah, you've seen, you've done both like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, fortunately, the nine-year-old doesn't even have a phone yet. Okay. So the twelve-year-old, he got his when he was eleven. But it's, you know, if he wants to do anything besides text his friends or make a phone call or play the games that are on it, it has to go through us. So on a short leash. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, uh, Apple has made it really easy for parents to control the content on their iPhones. I think. A lot of parents oh. probably just need to spend a little more time educating themselves on how to. But, yeah, yeah. It's important you're aware. Yeah, I guess we're all learning on our feet. I mean, I didn't have an email account till I was, yeah, in my 20s. So. Same, same. I'm 48 now. And so, you know, I grew up like right as high school was wrapping up, you really started to see more impl- implement- implementation of, you know, the internet and things like that that were still pretty brand new. Everything was dialed. But, you know, in college was when, I really started like accessing the internet. So yeah, we, we grew up kind of analog still for us Gen Xers like myself. So yeah. Yeah. And so did you go in the army when you were young then? Is that? I did. I did. I was, I joined the army when I was 23, uh, right as I was wrapping up school. And, uh, at the time they were paying for your, for your, uh, college tuition or your loans essentially and everything. So I got to join as a musician. It was a really great experience. And when I met my wife there and everything, mm-hmm. she's a musician as well in the military. Um, so it was great. It was a good experience. You know, I was only four years for me. That was enough. But, you know, it definitely bridged everything that I still do today. Um, Overall, very positive experience. Sometimes, you know, military and music are a bit oil and water. But for the most part, uh, it opened my eyes to a lot of good things that we yeah. that don't if that don't get the headlines, you know. If there's one job in the military I could pick to be, a musician would be yeah, up there. It was, it was solid. <laughs> it was a solid gig. It was a solid gig. You get advanced rank and everything because you, you have to know how to play before you go in and everything. So they, they, took, they took pretty good care of us, man. I, I really enjoyed the experience. So your guest that we've chosen to interview is uh, Jonathan Lubecki, and he's uh, a, a, the Veterans and Governmental Affairs Liaison for MAPS which is super interesting organization. He's been on, uh, um, checking out some of his videos. How did you come across him? I think like a lot, the first time I became aware of Sergeant Lubecki and his story was, uh, in the documentary that was on Netflix, the how to change your mind that they did with Michael Pollan. I think it came out in 2020. It might've been 2021, but kind of in that haze of the pandemic sat there and watched all the episodes. I was familiar with Michael Pollan's book several years ago that came (laughs) out. It was just the book itself when I picked it up was very sciencey with all the, you know, experiments that they were doing and a lot of the science talk behind it. So I thought the documentary was great because they were able to bring it to the masses that way, the message and the results without getting so into uh, some of the stuff that might turn people off or, you know, it would get confusing. I'd be reading and all of a sudden I'd realize I had no comprehension of the last three or four sentences I might've read. So. Um, but yeah, like a lot, I think I saw him and Matt first in the MDMA episode mm-hmm. and Im- immediately connected, you know, with the story as a veteran, 
Um, and, you know, really, you know, the, the part that moved me or inspired me most in, in wanting to speak to him more was his point in the 22 suicides a day still, that it's been a long number for, for several years now, um, as far as veterans committing suicide every day. That's a, that's a shocking number, you know, and unfortunately, I think it's hard for a lot of us who have served. I don't know any of my friends who don't know somebody who has wow. taken their own life, you know, so, uh, you know, we have all these soldiers and, you know, different you know, airmen and Navy, all these folks going and doing exactly what we ask of them. Hmm. And then, you know, when they get out of the military, there's not enough care to help them through the, you know, hmm. the PTSD that yeah. a lot of people bring home from trauma affects everyone. Um, and you know, I think uh, Sergeant Lou Becky, I've seen him say this in multiple interviews. The reason he's kind of taken the front is because, you know, when, when a veteran tells you something that might go against what you've learned, especially when it comes to psychedelic research and stuff like that, and his experience, people tend to listen. Right. Yeah. It's an identifiable trauma, you know, but trauma happens to all of us in, in different ways. Um, so I've been, I've been really, the big three things I want to speak to him most about is obviously where we're at currently, as far as daily suicides, if that number has changed and uh, his work and thoughts on that, obviously an update as to what's gone on with MAPS and his lobbying efforts in DC and uh, where all those bills are. I'm fascinated. He was, from what I understand, he was uh, pretty good at getting AOC and Matt Gates to sponsor a bill together, to work together. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, thoroughly fascinated by how how that's all coming on, and of course uh, the more recent stuff he's been doing in Kiev, and you know humanitarian efforts with the war in Ukraine. Yeah, yeah so, we've got in between sorties to the Ukraine now. We... Yeah, and so many of the stuff he was doing a few years ago was just strictly like a lot of the podcasts I saw he was doing was strictly based on maps and his work with that and his mm. experience with the therapy. Um, so I really want to see where he's at today. You know, because uh, yeah. it seems like a lot has changed. And uh, yeah, I, I, like I said, man, I'm real excited that you yeah. presented the opportunity for me to speak with him. So. Well, no, I'm delighted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we had, uh, we haven't had Michael Pollan on yet, but we've had Rick Doblin on, the founder mm -hmm. of MAPS. And uh, that was super interesting. And, but it, it was, was from, yeah, it was, an, it was not, it was more of a journalistic approach. It wasn't, um, you know, you as a veteran, right, speak the same language. Um, this is the beautiful thing. I can just step back now. I'm chatting to you, but mm -hmm. you know, if I, if I just, if Jonathan comes on the show and chats to me, it's just going to be another interview. Like we've seen him on before, but with you, you guys are going to have just such a, a deep level of connection and I'm really going to get a lot more from listening to it. From that yeah, place. I'm excited. And I mean, I know it's not how you've usually done the format of the podcast, but I'm excited that it is going to work out for face to face for John and I, Yeah, because um, I think that those can be you know, reading body language in a discussion is such a thing. So I, I feel yeah. like we're going to have a bit of a more honest discussion maybe. So I'm excited yeah. about, it. it's really great that he's uh, willing to come, come down to where I'm at uh, next Saturday in DC. And, and yeah. So after yeah. a show, is he coming to see this show as well? I hope so. He's yeah. more than welcome to stick around. All the rest of the guys in the band, when I told him that this is how this was panning out, because I've been obviously with the song and yeah, everything, yeah. I've been keeping the guys posted and everything where we were at. And, uh, you know, I, everyone's very excited to meet him. And I think, I think honestly, we'll get a better tune out of it. Of course. Cause the guys, you know, really would want this band to, to play the whole, you know, to do everything and to yeah. all to play on it. And, um, because you've just got such a, an amazing lineup there. I mean, you could, you do such, 
what 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 genre is it? Uh, is they call us a jam band, which I'm okay with. I used to yeah. kind of, you know, that's a bit limiting. Like, that's that's a feels like it sometimes, but I, you know, I felt that way pretty strongly 15 years ago. Like, mm. you know, yes, we jam, especially in the live show. We take risks. We don't do the same set every night. There's a lot of the same elements yeah. that exist there. But you know, we've also always been more focused on the songwriting than yeah. the jamming, especially yeah. for the albums, obviously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's I'm pretty comfortable with jam band at this point you know i think <laughs> everybody loves the dead now and you know fish is a real popular band for a long time over here mm. so like you know i'll take it i i love the scene i know mm. that that when we go do freedom, these best yeah. exactly when we go do these festivals the audience wants us to take the risk they want us to maybe fall apart you know why we're trying something new which i can't think of a lot of other uh, audiences that will give you that kind of liberty and freedom where they actually want you to take the risk and everything. So many people go to a show, which is fine to be entertained, mm -hmm. to see a performance, which is totally great. And I've seen a lot of awesome performances from bands that I really love, you know, but what we do is definitely in that world of a symbiotic relationship with the audience, you know, mm -hmm. um, pushing each other, you know, to, to drive the music in different directions, which is always yeah. fun. You and know, a completely too. different tour experience because you know I've been on tour. You're on repeat. You're playing the same set. You you get into a groove, uh, a perpetual groove. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know you're having to. You're improving. You're upping the game. You're saying let's do this. Remember that. And you're just all this all this stuff's going on. So it must be amazing. Yeah, and we're we're real careful. Like night to night, there's no repeats. Even though we might be in different town towns <laughs> and, and markets and everything like that, we know that there's a pretty rabid fan base that's keeping an eye to make sure. That we're not playing the same show every night. Joking. Wow. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. That also allows us, though, to, you know, record every show and we put it up on nugs.net and on our Bandcamp page. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. so it's it's nice because we have subscribers that want to hear, they might want to <laughs> hear the same song from five different shows because each version is very different from the other, you know. Bands like that are worth, that should be dipped in gold, right? They should. They should. We're very appreciative. They've been really patient with us over the years, too, so very appreciative to be able to do it with the fan base that we have still but you also do i saw you doing diverse things like a wu-tang cover a cover yeah no we throw fun covers in for sure yeah, yeah that yeah, was yeah. crazy uh, yeah no we like to throw it all in there in the mix we have talking heads setters. yeah yeah a lot of a lot, uh, couple talking heads so i think uh, night melody is the one that we're probably most known for that cover mm, um, that's beautiful yeah but, you know just little shifts that you know i i play more of a guitar thing on that and the guitar player takes what is the synth lead you know in the original recording that bernie warrell was playing which mm. you know just kind of happened one night the first time we tried i was like sure go for it so it stayed that way so little changes yeah. like that you know that's what's so great about songs is that you yeah. can interpret it you know that fits fits your band sometimes yeah yeah well, brilliant no it'd be great if all the guys could work on it if they you know if they meet jonathan as well like you say then there'll be more because that's, you know, we're doing a song for him because he deserves a song, you know, with Absolutely. his work, you know, to, mm -hmm. so yeah, that would really come across, really make a much, I wish everyone would go to meet everyone, but unfortunately it right. doesn't usually work like that. We usually at a distance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Yeah. But it's such, it's such a cool concept. It took me, after you sent me the example of the Rick Doblin interview, I was like, oh, wow, this is, it's, it, it's quite a bit to bite off too. 
you've got yeah. a lot of organizing on your side to do it. So bravo, man. Cheers Thank to, you. to that, man. That's a lot, a lot of work. So. Well, it's setting up the interviews, which takes the most time doing the songs is, uh, yeah. is the easiest part, you know, it's a lot of setting up. So also when you go there, will you, um, will you take a, could you take a mic to record some, some good sound in the room? Yeah. I'm planning on bringing this setup with another mic. So both okay. of us can just, uh, set up the video. So hopefully both of us are in shot there, obviously. Okay. And then I'm going to just use what I'm using here right now with another mic. So, okay. Brilliant. Yeah, definitely want to get you a good sound and recording. No doubt. Okay. And so I won't be asking too many questions. I'll just be kind of in the room, but it'd be great if I could be there to, you know, if yeah. you could put me on the laptop. As a, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I don't think that should be an issue at all. We're, we're, we're playing at the Hamilton. Okay. In Washington, D.C., it's like two blocks from the White House. It's right downtown there. So Seriously? I can't imagine that they don't have, you know, Wi-Fi set up that's strong. Yeah, you can get on the White House Wi-Fi if you know the password. <laughs> there we go, yeah. You must get... have a powerful signal. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. They're net. Uh, yeah. Oh, really? Right downtown there? Yeah. yeah, right downtown. I've played the room a couple times. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. I love it. They have, plus, they have a grand piano in-house, so that's always a nice treat to walk into a room that has that set up for you. Yeah, that's, that's, and that's, and what time, what time do you do? Have you set it up? Are you just gonna? No, I think, I think we're going to shoot for, uh, right after our sound check. So I'm waiting on my tour manager, to get me those details. And then I was going to hit our email chain we have going. Okay, great. That's the best yeah. way to do it. Yeah. Let's yeah. do that. Yeah. Sweet. Well, it's just, you're so, uh, it's going to go so smoothly now because I know, you know, you, you put so much work into it already and, uh, yeah, just make a great song afterwards. It's going to be a Let's real pleasure as well. Yeah. yeah. Everyone's yeah. excited about that for sure. Yeah. And spread the word about his, his wonderful work. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. All right, mate. Well, unless there's anything else you think we should cover before. Uh... I think we got it, man. Like I yeah. said, it's nice to finally meet you with all these emails. I apologize for uh, some of them slipping through the cracks here and there, but no know, worries. I'm sure you can understand the life of a touring musician. I so. can. And a father of four. <laughs> <laughs> very busy all the time respect <laughs> thank you sir thank you thank you yeah. back at you man yeah awesome awesome well thanks jack i will stay in touch man all right matt see you in uh, a moment yeah awesome thanks, take man. care bye-bye bye-bye hello matt hey what's up jack how are you doing man i'm doing great can you hear me good here i hear you loud and clear yeah okay and how about over here yeah okay so yep. I'm going to give the cans to uh, John right here. It's John. Hey. Unfortunately, the mixer I brought isn't working properly. So he's going to have cans on and be able to hear you. Okay, great. Thanks, Jack. There you go. Howdy, howdy. How's it going? Hey, John in the green room. Yeah. I Backstage. <laughs> Backstage all access pass. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, we haven't done one of these in a dressing room before. Hey, I've done a lot of weird shit in a lot of weird places, so nothing surprises <laughs> me anymore. Like, uh, there was one time uh, we had this big event up in New York City, and they had to get like ten different Airbnbs to to house everybody. Right, nine out of the ten Airbnbs were totally amazing. One of them turned out to be a crack house. It was hilarious. Like, I go to take a nap. Um, cause I had a break in the day and I mean, it's a big, you know, psychedelics conference. So everybody's up late. I wake up and, and they're like, Hey, we got something that'll really wake you up. They pull out a crack pipe. 
my buddy's like, you want to go get some coffee? I'm like, yeah. They're like, this will wake you up better. I'm like, no, I'm kind of good on this. And then they, and then, and then they stole his shoes. So like the, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen to you. And of all the one in 10. Oh, dude, drug, working in drug policy, there's so many bonkers stories. It's, it's just, it's hilarious. Yeah. It's good for podcasts though. Oh, it's fantastic. This is why, like, every time I do a podcast, I have new stuff, new material to talk about. <laughs> it's like being a stand-up comedian, you know? You just do all these crazy stuff, so you've got things to talk about. Oh, and it, what's funny is sometimes I'll do shit because it is funny, so I have a story later, and other times it just happens. I'm like, this is just bonkers. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for agreeing to chat to us. I mean, we've, we've been really excited for this interview. We had, uh, you know, such a fun time. I've already here uh, chatted to Matt to prepare and he's got he's ready to to chat away to you so uh yeah sweet we ready yep awesome awesome thanks jack i can watch you mine for me from where i'm sitting right now great so pleasure to meet you john thank nice you so you. much for doing this obviously uh you know like so many people on the how to change your mind documentary that came out over the pandemic myself my wife is also that you know we saw this we had similar experiences outside of yours post-war, but that we found healing as well. Um, so to see somebody put a face to it in the right uh, atmosphere and with the right trials and, you know, put it up front in a way that the public uh, can digest a little bit more. But well, and also I'll tell you, you know, this isn't a silver bullet. Um, it doesn't work for everyone. Um, you know, you, you look at the phase three trials, uh, the, the first phase three trial, you had about 12% of people that, that, that just Nothing. It didn't work for them. Um, and, and then you have other people who went into full remission, and then you had some people who had, you know, reduction in symptoms but weren't in full remission yet. Mm -hmm. And uh, the second half of phase three, um, I don't, I personally don't know the numbers, but we're seeing this a similar thing. There's there's a small portion that just it doesn't work. And this is where one of the things I talk about a lot is, you know, a lot of my focus is on MDMA, but there's also ibogaine and psilocybin and 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 five meo and all these things, but also there there's Zoloft and there's hot yoga, right? And PTSD is a spectrum, and and I think one of the big disservices that we do, that society has is we have an idea of what PTSD is, and we think it's the same for everyone. Right? And so I know people who have you know PTSD, and they're fortunate; they don't have nightmares. You know, they have other stuff. And some people, like, they don't have any problems with hypervigilance or anything, but they can't sleep more than an hour without nightmares, waking up in cold sweats. So because you have this spectrum of mild to severe, you know, for some people going to the gym, going, going to the church and talking to a pastor is all they need. For some people, you know, it, it's meditation and yoga and others, you know, for some people, a Zoloft today keeps the doctor away. Like. We need to have every option on the table to address this issue because every person is different and every person needs a different solution. And I've heard you mention in the past that your trauma is easier maybe for Congress and the folks that you're working with to identify. And it's an easy place to put it, but that trauma happens to everyone and it affects every individual differently. So, well, and this is where it gets interesting. I've had, I, I, because I'm in media and I do podcasts and you know, Netflix and John Oliver right, were, were huge where I had a lot of people suffering, reach out to me for help or just to say, Hey, thanks for saying what you said, you know, 
And, and I'll be honest, one of the things I personally have a hard time handling is the number of people who reach out and are like, and, and tell me I was going to kill myself last night. And then I saw an interview you did, and I decided not to. Do you and, mind if we talk a little bit about your personal experience? Because yes. uh, there's an interview that you did in 2018 at CPAC that was not one of your longest ones, but was to me just fascinating. At the time, you had said that it, it was kind of a stream, I guess, but you know, you were lobbying for essentially. Mm -hmm. Do you still get that in the sense of? Uh, yeah. So it, it, it does. Can I just, can I just check, uh, can I just check that Matt's mic was working? Are you recording? Locally, the, uh, will that your mic go into the? Um... Hold on. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. He's asking technical I don't hear, questions. I don't I hear you, you hear so well on that. Oh yeah, that's How's much this? different. Yeah. Better. Yeah, yeah, I'll eat the mic. Yeah, that, my bad. Okay. All right. Thanks. Good. Yes. No, no. Like, if it was something like, "Hey, turn a little to the left," that I could <laughs> relay. When you start, when you start talking about like technical shit, I'm like, okay, this is out of my wheelhouse. Yeah, so I'm sorry. I know I threw two questions at you there, kind of, but um, like I forgot what they were. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. The most important one in 2018, mm -hmm. you were speaking. Oh, whether it's extreme or not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it, we we are getting a lot more Republicans on board. Um, I'll be honest. I, one of the issues that we have is there are people who are in this to end the drug war, and there's people in this for medical. Right. And when you intermingle those two it causes a lot of problems you know the the drug policy movement talks a lot about and, and puts a lot of blame on richard nixon and he gratefully earned it uh but they also forget there was a reason he did that which was there were people doing these things there were negative outcomes you had some cults pop up and you also had you know so people would go do do mushrooms and then go try to plot to overthrow the government. And so when you keep, you know, John Oliver, I, I, I'm I keep going back because that was a great segment. And one of the ones I was happy to see that at the beginning of the season too. So the, the biggest and best part about that show is when he said we messed it up before and we can absolutely mess it up again. And this is where when people want to like jump ahead. There's a process here and it sucks because, you know, you have friends you've lost. I have friends I've lost. And I know every day that this isn't approved and available, people are dying. But I also know that the only way that the guys in my unit and veterans around this country will ever have access is if this is FDA approved and done through the VA, is that's where most veterans get their medical treatment. My dad still goes to the VA hospital this very day in Vietnam, but yeah. you know, still in retirees covered, covered by TRICARE. And, and, and the problem is when you look at the other methods that people are doing around the country, um, that won't lead to FDA approval and stuff like this, veterans won't have access because they can't afford it. You know, they're on a fixed income, especially if you have severe PTSD, you know, you're probably not working. You have a fixed income. You've got just enough to pay your bills. And then they're like, hey, you can go spend 10 grand to do an ayahuasca retreat. And that's not access. And, and the, the problem is the way they're doing it in the States, in my opinion, will give access to the people who are already doing it and to wealthy individuals. And the people who are truly suffering, you know, the PTSD, 
you know, they're on Medicare and Medicaid, you know, they've got health insurance and all of this, and they're going to be left out in the cold unless this is FDA approved. Now, back to how extreme it is, like there is a stigma still. I guess what I was really referring to, I know that Jane Sessions have made it difficult for uh, doctors to grow their own cannabis, right? Correct. Has something like that shifted under Garland or is it still? So one, it, it wasn't just sessions. Um, right. It, it, I ju- I, like I said, I was referring to previous podcasts. Where you- right, right. No, no. And and here's the thing. Like, yeah, Jeff Sessions did do that. So did Eric Holder. And okay. like, we, we can hit every attorney general going back for a few decades. All the way back, right. Now, here's the interesting thing that where psychedelics are different than cannabis. So cannabis, the, in order to, to, to manufacture, whether that's grow or like making a lab, a schedule one narcotic for research purposes, you have to get a license from the federal, from the DEA. And there's all sorts of requirements on that. So with cannabis, they issued one license to the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, which then contracted with the University of Mississippi to grow all the cannabis for federal research. And it was oral cannabis. Like my kid probably could have gotten better shake in middle school. (laughs) Um, And and that was actually one of the issues with the uh, cannabis phase two trial. Uh, was the weed was crap. Okay, I got a quick question. Can I swear on this or not? Oh, yes, yes. Okay, just ask. We encourage. Okay. Um, but the weed was complete shit. Yeah. And so through a concerted effort of a lot of people, and it's one of the things I, I, I worked on, especially like back in 2018 and stuff okay. like this, was ending the night of Monopoly, which would have allowed, which then it has now ended. They, okay. they have so, issued multiple licenses. I believe there's five to 10 licenses that have been issued. That's progress. Um, progress. And, and so the, so that is, that, you know, that was fixed. Now that has never existed for psychedelic. Right. So for example, uh, MAPS started their MDMA trial, uh, the, like 20 years ago, I think was the first dose. Right. Um, somebody can fact check me on that one, but it was, I, I know I did it in 2014. Right when cannabis was still illegal to research. So with psychedelic, I, and I think part of the government's philosophy behind this was it's not worth the fight because this won't work. And then holy shit, it does. Right. And I think part of the reason they block research into cannabis is they knew it would work. And so to prevent it, so they prevented that evidence from being shown. Whereas with psychedelics, they didn't really think it would work. So therefore they don't, they, they believed if they allowed the trials to go forward, that it would prove that this is, you know, bad stuff and et cetera, et cetera. And instead they gave a print and therapy designation and then everybody's like, well, they right. So, right. um, but it's interesting. You, you actually have a lot of Democrats who are against this or nervous about it at least. Right. Um, and you have a lot of Republicans same way, but we also have a lot of Republicans, uh, and Democrats who've come together. Uh, and, and I'm not necessarily talking like a- AOC or, or Earl uh, Blumenauer, two very wonderful people, regardless of whether you agree with their politics, they're very nice people. Um, you know, it, it, that's not who's leading us in Congress. Um, you know, it's people like Lou Korea, California, who's not a radical. Right. Uh, I don't think anybody would call Lou Korea a radical. Uh, and Jack Bergman, um, who's a, a Michigan congressman, Republican retired Marine Corps three-star general. And you have people like Dan Crenshaw. 
Right. You also have some kind of interesting people on the right sporting it, like Matt Gates. Right. Um, and, and so like Matt Gates and AOC coming out and supporting this is about the most Matt Gates and AOC thing you could do. Sure. And this is where having people like like Congressman Crenshaw and, and Congressman Bergman and Congressman Correa come. Um, you know, I think it goes back to you also helping be the face is that these veterans carry more weight publicly. We do. You know, I, I'm very fortunate as a veteran. I can send an email, a, a blind email to any congressional office and say 100% disabled combat veteran appointment request. And I get an appointment right now. Who I get the appointment with, it could be like an sure. intern out in the hallway. And that tells me the office's opinion on this. Or, you know, I'll meet with comms or LD or the health, I meet with a lot of health LAs and stuff like that to talk about this. And one of the big things that I have to get them past is that this isn't what you think. This isn't, hey, here's a buck. So, so, and it's interesting because a lot of this is, well, we just, this is like going to raves and stuff. And I'm like, no, this is like therapeutic to specially trained therapists. Right. But also it's, it, it's because going back to cannabis, if you get a, they're worried that like, you look at California. You can be 18 and say, hey, when, when I talk to girls, I get a little nervous. And they're like, here's your weed card. You can smoke as much as you want, wherever you want, whenever you want right. for the rest of your life. And they're, there's concern that that's what psychedelic assisted therapy is. And once they realize that it, it's far closer to other medical procedures, honestly, like, like a broken bone or a colonoscopy, right. you know, one of the things I, I, I say all the time is, you know, for me, like the idea of doing MDMA recreationally is kind of weird. Sure. Like I get why people do it. I'm not yeah. stupid. Mm -hmm. But for me personally, because that experience is so wrapped up in all my trauma. Right. And healing from it and going through it and processing it. It's a lot more like anesthesia. Um, because the therapies would actually fix it. It wasn't the MDMA. The MDMA. I'm that you said that, and you mentioned it earlier, that it's not a magic bullet. Any of that. No. Psilocybin, MDMA, any of that. But that it will help the brain maybe open up new gateways uh, that will allow you to heal. But you still do that work. And I think, yes. it's, I think it's important that people realize like the work is still on the individual. This is just, well, in some cases, the magic that helps right. you get to the place. To do but it has to be done with, with people who know what they're doing. And, and you know, I'll, I'll be honest, one of my biggest fears in, you know, always coming, doing a lot of podcasts, being in media and, and talking about this, is that there's a veteran out there right now who hears my story and says, all I have to do is take MDMA. Sure. And they're at a party and somebody says, hey, do you want some? Well, and then it's laced with fentanyl or meth right. or, you know, the, this is a pharmaceutical product. You know, nobody goes to CVS and buys Advil thinking it's laced with fentanyl. Exactly. And that's because Advil's manufactured to a standard called GMP, good manufacturing practices. And these things need to be manufactured in the exact same way. Otherwise, you know, that person will go to a party or a rave. They'll take it. It could have God knows what in it. And they're not doing it in the therapeutic environment. They don't have the therapist because all the MDMA does, which is the mind, body, and spirit place it needs to be right, for the therapy to actually work. And so it is very akin to anesthesia for, for various things. And like, I don't know anybody who the day after a colonoscopy says, hey, that anesthesia was great. I'm going to schedule another one. Right. And so, but my big fear is that somebody's going to say, hey, all I got to do is take a pill and I'll be fixed. 
And that's not what this is. Yeah. And I think it ties into American society as a whole is looking for the cure instead of maybe looking for assistance to help yourself, you know, heal in a sense. Um, speaking of the word cure, you have used that word in the past and, and used it in tying with pharmaceutical companies being afraid of some of these drugs and therapies because of the word cure being tossed. So I have used the word cure for, for myself personally. Right. The, That's how I define my deal. Um, I, I guess my point of bringing that up is only like the fact that anyone uses that word. Um, I, I don't. Because you're not the only one. So, so part of it is because this is going, and this is where also where, you know, going through the FDA model it is the right way to do this because the other, the pharmaceutical companies can't attack the FDA model because then they undermine their own ability to approve drugs. Right. And if you just pass things legislatively, that without the science, without the trials, without going through the process, well, then they can attack and undermine. But also, frankly, they know how much Zoloft they sell in a year. And they know that, that one of the biggest bottlenecks is enough trained therapists. It's going to take decades to treat everyone. Right. I mean, it, it, I think I heard a number. We need 25,000 new trained therapists. Right. In five years, just to meet, come close to meeting demand. Um, but also going back to, to one of the questions you asked, uh, you know, it is easier as a bet in part because, and it, it, this is one of the really interesting things you have vets and how they view their own mental health. And then you have everybody else, right? Vets are very afraid to say, I have PTSD. They're very afraid to seek help. They don't want to talk about it. But their trauma is socially accepted. They can go, go talk, sit down with a congressman or, and, and say, you know, I could sit down with any congressman and say, spent four years in the Marine Corps, eight years in the Army. I deployed to RACO 506. I came back with PTSD. And they just nod their head. It's fully understood. It's a lot harder if you're talking about somebody who, you know, was sexually molested as a child, right? One, they may not want to go on the media. They may not want to go tell a congressman because their family may not even know yet. Right. And they might not want to tell anyone. Exactly. Spending a whole lifetime not telling yourself, I think, is a big part of that, too. Um, so, yeah, that's a, it's incredibly brave of you. And I, I, I think that. Well, it's I, not just me. There's a lot. There's a lot of other amazing veterans in the space. Yeah, it's like Jesse Gould, uh, Marcus Capone's. Uh, Jesse Gold runs the Request Project okay, and, uh, uh, Marcus and Amber Capone run Vets, Veterans One so yeah, Treatment yeah. Solutions. I've been happy to see so many veterans speaking out in a, in a really great, uh, well-spoken public manner. Like you said, it, um, it's something that the public accepts too. Right. That's the kind of trauma that like, oh, well, this ex war happened, whatever. And the big umbrella that that covers. So, you know, his trauma is identified. Well, and the good thing is like, let's take our, you know, Marcus Capone. You know, he, he, he's a tier one operator, Navy SEAL, and he's been able to, and he's come out publicly and, and said, you know, Hey, I had problems. And so you see this, this, this person who in media and, and in politics and in everything, it's Navy SEALs are indestructible. Then you have a Navy SEAL come out and say, Hey, I have a problem that allows other people who aren't Navy SEALs to say, well, okay, if this strong guy, this going and seeking help is a weakness, if he can do it. Most of our living metal alone recipients suffer from, from crippling PTSD because of the event that earned them the medal of honor. 
Um, some of them have come forward and talked about it, which is a good thing. Yeah. Um, you know, Dakota Meyer has talked about uh, using uh, psychedelic assisted therapy, right? Uh, you know, get it, asking for help isn't weakness and having strong people come, people who society views as strong coming out, right? Um, it makes it easier. But it's also interesting how many people have told me point blank that they don't have PTSD because that's just for soldiers who go to war. And then I'll ask them, well, okay, tell me about your trauma. And then they'll tell me, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, that's a thousand times worse than anything I saw in Iraq. Right. They're like, yeah, but you went to war and I did it. And I'm like, that doesn't change your trauma. And one of the other things, especially within the veteran, uh, but in general, we need to stop comparing each trauma because the trauma that was the worst thing in your life is the worst thing in your life. Right. And it doesn't matter what that is. You know, the worst thing in my life may be different. It doesn't matter. There is no comparison. Right. And, you know, the other thing, especially with Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, modern spaces got bombed and you've got the guy in finance who got mortared every day who has PTSD and he goes home and they're like, you never left the wire. How do you have PTSD? Right. You know, you work in finance. What did you do? And, and you know, I actually see that as, as a form of stolen valor because you're stealing that person's like problems and saying they're not real when they live with them each and every day. Yep. Yep. I was in Bosnia uh, from 99 to 2000 at Eagle Base in Tuesday. And was very fortunate. I was part of NATO S4 mission. I was a musician in the military stationed down in Fort Stewart. So when we were deployed, we were still, you know, part of the QRF at Eagle Base and everything. But for the most part, we were playing to other NATO troops, uh, the Russians, Turkish yeah. faces, and going all over and doing that. And my trauma was never combat related or anything like that. It was a healing, wonderful thing on a humanitarian level, which mm -hmm. I want to talk more about what you're doing there, working with these orphans that had been, you know, orphaned from the war and going to their schools and playing for that, having the one-on-one -on -one interaction. But when I came home, there was still stuff I carried home with me. It took a minute to figure out that I didn't realize that it wasn't, you know, from a mortar going off or from bullets flying by my head or anything like that. Well, and that's one of the things I actually, uh, I addressed a uh, Vietnam Veterans of America committee on PTSD yesterday. And uh, one of the things that I notice over and over, and it's kind of interesting, it's usually when civilians talk about veterans, they use combat PTSD um, and veteran PTSD synonymously. And so one of the interesting things is, yes, veterans can suffer from combat PTSD. I'm not saying sure. no, no to that, but also... So do war correspondents, so do humanitarian relief workers, so are the people who live in those war-torn areas. That's all combat PTSD. Plus, you have people who serve, who suffer, not just who, who may have combat PTSD, or they may have PTSD from military sexual trauma, from a training incident, um, from humanitarian re relief efforts. Mm -hmm. Or, let's be honest, most of the a lot of the people who join the military come from they had suffered early childhood trauma, which is why they go to the military and leave home for years at a time and are perfectly okay with that. Right. And so this is where the PTSD suffered by veterans is a large swath of causes. 
And when you, you pigeonhole everything to combat PTSD, well, then, you know, that, that uh, male veteran who, who was sexually assaulted in a hazing incident who has PTSD feels they can't come forward because they didn't get it from combat. They got it from something that's embarrassing, et cetera. And right. so this is where like people like myself and Marcus and other veterans in the space, we view it as our duty to, to step forward. Um, and it's not easy. It does take a, a very heavy emotional toll yeah. to, to do all that. Finally on the veteran front, yeah. I know the number for a while has been 22 suicides a day. Do you know, is there any recent data that shows that that might've started to tick down? That's the hardest question to answer. And, and it's because, you know, one 22 a day was, was the statistic for, for a very long time. Right. As long as I can remember it. This VA number now I believe is 17. There's also studies that show as high as 44. I think the true answer is we don't know the real number, right? Here is one number I do know over 130 people in this country every day, including veterans commit suicide. That is a number we do that. And it's that also, number. but that also is a low number because a lot of times, so one, you have medical examiners, law enforcement, people who investigate deaths, who a lot of times will call it an accidental death when it wasn't exactly accidental. Um, a lot of times, you know, self-inflicted only comes if there's a letter or it's conclusive. Otherwise they label it as something else. Then it doesn't dump into that. And this is why, honestly, I rarely, you'll rarely hear me talk about it, uh, over the past few years and give a number, right? Because we just don't know. Well, because the number doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't right. matter. Guy in my unit repassed six months ago, killed himself. These people, 22 a day is a number. Every one of those people has a name and a family and people left behind. And this is where, with the permission of families, I believe rather than talking about a statistic, we should be talking about, you know, a name, a family, a story, because when you say 22, it goes in one ear and out the other. When right. you say in Maine, yeah. like so we were just one. talking about a numbers and, and I could tell you getting a little bit emotional as, as we're sitting here because I'm talking about a name. Right. and giving a story and that's how you can make a connection because it's really easy to ignore statistics yeah but it's also you know it's also been interesting because a lot of veterans are like hey i would i like to, i want to do drugs so there's it's funny how many people i know who have ptsd who won't admit it to themselves who are like i totally want to do mdma i'll do that i'm like whatever gets you in, into therapy man i really don't care what what it is but you know it goes back to, I guess, how do we toe that line between the recreational availability of folks and the medical use being available without Timothy leering it again, you know, having somebody that uh, makes such a bad reputation that the government acts against it again. Well, I, and part of the problem, honestly, with psychedelics is when there's bad outcomes, they're really bad and they typically make headlines. I saw a headline, on, I think, on CNN or Politico just the other day. People went into the mountains and did mushrooms and got lost and they had to send out a rescue party. Well, that was on CNN. Okay. How many, know. you know, how many people did mushrooms and didn't go get lost and have to have a rescue party, but they don't think like that. It's, it's only what people see in the papers. Right. Um, and, and this is where like, 
there's so many trust issues involved. So, I mean, PTSD in and of itself is part trust issues. Sure. But like, you know, growing up, I didn't trust therapists because I had a therapist breach confidentiality with my abuser. Right. Um, when you're in the military, nobody goes and talks to the shrink because no. nobody trusts the shrink. Well, I don't know now, but I know in 98, you know, didn't want to risk all of a sudden you're not in the military anymore. You know? and, and this is where, like, I hope that the DOD um, will eventually allow this as a treatment within amongst active duty. Because for one, I would much rather see people heal when trauma happens than have to sit there and decide, do I get out or do, do I stay another four years and try to stick it out so I can retire and get my retirement check? You've got, you know, the, but also if they're healed on active duty, they don't have to go to the VA. Right. And that would lower pressure on the VA. This is why I was actually really happy that, uh, you know, uh, Representative Crenshaw, uh, I believe Luttrell, quite a few people, but also Ro Connor, you know, an anti-war progressive, right. yeah. joined with Dan Crenshaw to uh, require the National Institutes of Health to allow active duty participation in psychedelic trials. Wow. So it, it does make for a lot of really interesting bedfellows, but make those statements being made are important. I think so. A, a new military that continues to evolve reflects the country as well. My son, uh, who's 24, is currently in Ramstein. He's in the Air Force for combat communications and everything like that. So, you know, we have an active duty military member in the house. We keep nice. an eye on all these things. That, you know, my wife was not only in Bosnia with me, but she was also at the first part of Iraq okay. in the early 2000s. And, uh, you know, we... We have a little bit of experience in what coming home feels like. And, um, you know, so we keep an eye on all the signs with him. But fortunately, right now, it seems like they're letting grouts mustaches far there and all sorts of stuff. They're loosening up the regulations on in a good way. Let's uh, real quick talk about, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. That's actually a really interesting segue yeah. uh, with your son being stationed in Ramstein because uh, when I when I go back and forth to Ukraine, frequently I get on what's known as the rotator from Baltimore to Ramstein. Yeah. And yeah. so... Uh, been to Ramstein quite a few times, both in and out, out of Eastern Europe. My dad's disabled vet. So growing up, we were eligible for max flights and hops and everything. So we'd always hop out of Dover, Delaware and to Ramstein. And yep. uncle was stationed in Wiesbaden at the time. So we'd stay with him and do Europe that way. You know, it was amazing because, you know, it, it was a public school teacher and my dad was a Christian education director. And so, you know, to be able to take family to Europe with Oh, the flights. most expensive, uh, yeah, the most expensive part of like traveling to Europe is the airfare. Right. Like, right. especially when, you know, okay, if you're talking one person, okay, like it's grand for me to fly from, from Dulles to Warsaw. Um, that's not bad. Okay. When you're talking about you, your wife and three kids, well, that starts to add up quickly. Now, the nice thing is in Eastern Europe, um, things are very inexpensive because uh, of the uh, exchange rates and things right. like that, yeah. uh, which, which is helpful. Um, Tell us a little bit about the work uh, that you've been doing since the war in Ukraine started. Yeah, so um, last year I went uh, to to Eastern Europe to help uh, refugees and Ukrainians uh, three times, um, doing more and more each time, honestly. Uh, and I'm actually about to go back here on the 28th. Um, and interestingly enough, this time I'll be speaking at a psychedelic convention in Kiev. Interesting. And then I will go down east near the lines and check on my warehouse and do some humanitarian aid work and logistics down there. Um, it started. So 
uh, I lost my mom December 1st, 2020. And then I lost my dad October 6th, 2021. And my goal uh, my dad was 100% Polish, always wanted to go to Poland and never did. And so when he died, I made a promise that I was going to go within a year because I wanted to see it. And he always thought there'd be another day and there wasn't. And I know how many days there shouldn't have been another days for me. You said October of 21, he passed? Yeah. And the war started in February of 22, correct? Correct. So right after the war started, uh, got a call from a friend of mine here in DC, uh, Adam Eidinger, and he, uh, he's like, hey man, do you want to go to Moldova to help refugees? I'm like, cool, do I pack right now? Or like, do I have some time? Right. <laughs> he's yeah. like, no, no, we're leaving in like a week and a half. And uh, I'm like, cool. So we went over and uh, it was 10 people went over, eight people stayed in Romania. Me and my partner went into Moldova. And it's kind of funny. I found out later, like part of the reason Adam invited me is he knew he could literally drop me and my partner at the Moldova border and be like, figure it out. And I would. Nice. So we did. And, and we went delivered, uh, you know, medical supplies and, and chocolate bars actually went to right. a lot of the refugee camps and, you know, hand out chocolate bars to little kids. Yeah. Um, that's, can we stop just on that little detail for a second? Because I did a lot of that yeah. in Bosnia as well. And I want, I wish that more people could see how much of that the military does as Agreed. far as the humanitarian outreach part. And I don't say Spanish chocolate bars, little kids or whatever, but you know, there is a true human connection that you make with these people. And I think, you know, so many. Well, that's the winning the hearts and minds. And, and, you know, it's funny because, look, I work with the far left psychedelic movement and it's interesting their opinions on the military and, and veterans, you know, they think it's still, you know, draftier in 1960s Vietnam and, and, and like full metal jacket, full metal jacket. And like the American military is just to kill people. And like, they forget that the U S military goes into Haiti. The U S military goes into Bosnia. The U S military, you know, goes, goes to Thailand after, after a typhoon, you know, every earthquake, a, you know, every natural disaster, the U S goes in and, and helps people. And that's a good thing. Um, but. I came back from the first trip, but, but when Adam called, um, I said, okay, so here's the deal. I don't have a problem doing this, but if there's a second trip, I want to go to Paul. And I told him why. And he's like, total. So went, did the first trip. First trip went great. Came back, started planning the second trip. Uh, went to Poland, ended up, and it's funny because when I was in Moldova, uh, one of my good friends, uh, and colleagues that I work with, uh, Liana messaged me and she's like, are you over here? I'm like, well, I'm in Moldova. I don't know where here is, yeah, right? She's like, I'm in Poland. And she's like, do you think you could coordinate volunteers? I was like, as an NCO in the Marine Corps and the army, that's kind of our job. Literally, that's an NCO's job, coordinate volunteers. Yes. And so uh, she's like, hey, can you come help out? I'm like, yeah, I got to go back and like get my dog and find somebody to watch my, my, my dog. Uh, and so then I went to Poland, ended up in Medico. Was supposed to be there for like four or five days, ended up staying for over a month. Um, you know, went back and forth in, in, into Ukraine doing, doing different uh, humanitarian missions and supply runs. And that was funny because Turkish air totally hosed me. They wanted like four grand for me to, to, to honor my ticket. And I'm like, hold on. I call Ramstein, pa Pax Terminal. I'm like, is Space A open again? Because this, you know, there were still all these COVID restrictions. Yes. They're like, just opened up like three weeks ago. Perfect. I'm like, 
awesome. Yeah. So then I'm, I'm sitting here in Medica pulling. I'm like, now I got to get to Ramstein. Okay. So I grab my bags and hop the train and yep. hop the plane and hop the Miller train and made my way across Europe. Went to Ramstein and uh, ended up taking me about three days to get a flight back, but rode a C-17 back to, uh, and landed it in New Jersey, rented a car and then drove back to GC. Um, and then the third trip, uh, I went over uh, December 1st and I came back January 11th. Okay. Uh, so that was a, a much longer trip. And I actually kind of accidentally started getting involved with the psychedelic movement over there. Tell us um, more about that. You you mentioned you're speaking next or in a couple of weeks in Kiev. Or- uh, May fourth, yeah. May fourth, yeah. Uh, there's a psychedelic research conference in Kiev. So when you say research, is it in ther- therapy type? Yes, research. Okay, therapeutic for mental health. Gotcha. Um, and, and so I ended up while I was there, I talked to one of the largest veteran Ukrainian veterans organizations about it. Uh, I was able to brief uh, one of the largest military mental health hospitals, one of th- their entire therapeutic staff, um, met with some government officials and things like this. And then, you know, actually rented a warehouse while I was there, um, set it up as a logistics hub and then went down east. How does that feel nine years after your first therapy session to now be an ambassador, quite literally global? It, it, it's very weird, but also granted this is an N of one, but you know, the 4th of July before I took, went through the MDMA therapy, was living in South Carolina. I was in my closet, in my body armor with my service dog, having flashbacks of Iraq because of all the explosions. Right. And now I went down to the front lines between the, the Russians and the Ukrainians with artillery and small arms fire going on all around me. And I, I don't even flinch. I gave I, you the tool permanently maybe to... Well, I, to you know, maybe put things into categories, help you control maybe emotional responses that way. Yeah, but also, like, I knew I was safe where I was, like, relatively safe at least. And, and so I was emotionally present. It doesn't mean I didn't see horrible shit over there and didn't cry. I just of processed it. And when I came back, I picked up the phone. I called my therapist and had a few conversations. Um. But in part, because I was actually, one of the things that was an unknown quantity was, would I come back with P- new PTSD from sure. Ukraine? Sure. Um, but also it was easier knowing that if that were the case, I'd be able to, to that there was a, you know, there's MDMA assisted therapy that I could go through again and, right. and, and work on stuff. Um, so, so that was helpful. But, you know, one of the things for me personally is working on psychedelic policy and drug policy here in the U.S. is so excruciatingly fucking slow. It literally takes, I mean, I've been doing this for six years. We've made a lot of progress, but we're nowhere near where we need to be. Seems it's a PR game that's going well, though. Is that accurate or is that just the PR working? Part of it is if you're involved in this and know about it, most of the people in your life do too. So you end up being in an echo chain. Right. About two years ago, there was a, uh, a uh, Hill uh, Harris X pulled on and it asked one simple question. Do you believe psychedelics have the potential to help mental health? Yes or no? Yeah. 65% of the population said no, not even on potential. Gotcha. So, you know, the thing, part of, part of the thing that, that a lot of people, especially in policy forget is the United States is more than San Francisco, DC, and New York. 
There's people in Iowa too. And, you know, they need to understand to, to, to hear about this and, and, and learn that, okay, you know, if I break my leg and I go to the ER, they're probably going to give me morphine, but it's in a therapy, but it's in a, in a medical environment, you know, specially trained people, et cetera, et cetera. And that's fundamentally different than the guy shooting up heroin behind a 7-Eleven. Right. I mean, I'm not saying that person should, the person shooting up heroin behind 7-Eleven shouldn't get help. I absolutely think they should, but those are two different things. And so, you know, there's a lot more in, on the PR campaign, but it is it, like getting a bill passed takes years. And, and so being able to go over there and hand a family a box of food that'll feed them for a week, you know, a lot of the places I was going into were uh, formerly occupied territories and the right. Russians weren't feeding them. These are people who are starving and eating rats. And the elderly would go into the forest and forage for mushrooms to pickle. And the Russians had mined the forest. So being able to go in with, you know, clothing and, and, and food and medical supplies. When it comes to clothing and food like that, is there any thing or place that people over here can donate to that is sure to get to help like that? Or even if it's just money? Um, yeah, there, there's a few organizations, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll email you a list, but, uh, one of them is, uh, I work with an organization called United Refuge and it's, it, it's a very ingenious model, um, that's very different. And the hope is that actually it can be replicated in other areas in the world, but you know, if foreigners come in and do everything. Well, then when the war is over, there, there's nothing left. And so the purpose of United Refuge is to work with local organizations who, because you have an entire country mobilized for work. There's, there's people doing, you know, humanitarian work that were in IT or they were insurance salesmen right. and yeah. like, hey, uh, it's a very interesting and eclectic group of people I hang out with over there from very, very different backgrounds. Like one of them actually is a, is a drug counseling therapist. Oh, wow. Uh, so we actually had a lot of talk about, about this because he had never heard about it. Uh, and now actually he wants to get, get trained to be a psychedelic therapist. Nice. Most of what he works is people uh, addicted to alcohol. Right. Um, but he also does all this humanitarian work and has basically for, since 2014 been, been feeding people and all this stuff because we got invaded. So that's what they do now. So those are people who just got together and said, let's do it. And so what United Refuge does is we come in, we provide logistical support, strategic support. We also get them set up so that, you know, we have access to supplies and things, but we want to set them up to be able to get plugged into INGOs and, and the UN and all this stuff on their own so they can stand on their own two feet. So the, the purpose of United Refuge is to fill that gap from a bunch of people that get together and are just paying out of pocket to, to help people. To, and turn them into a, a, a full-fledged build infrastructure on the ground, essentially. Exactly. Right? Teach people to do it. In this way, you know, when the war's over and people leave, those orgs still exist. Still there. Right. Um, and so, it, but it's, it's, it's so rewarding to be able to go, to go over and, and, and to help. And, you know, whether you agree with U.S. policy, what, and, and, and we can debate how much we should spend and what weapons we should send or not send and things like this. But 
This is industrial warfare. They're right. leveling villages and there's people who live there. There's it's children. Targeting of civilians, I find most disturbing. Um, and that's after, I'll, I'll be honest. That's what I saw in yeah. Gaza because it was a lot of that during that, okay. even though different conflict, obviously, but you saw a lot of that too. And just the remnants, what I was witness to was the human condition after that. Right. And, and that's, uh, you know, I think probably why you do a lot of the work you do is because you've been exposed to that human condition as well. Well, that's why one of the things I'm trying to do is set up uh, psilocybin and ibogaine uh, treatment centers in the Carpathians in Western Ukraine to start treating people now, right. um, civilians, veterans, as well as active duty, with the full knowledge that the active duty will likely, if they're healed, volunteer to return back to the front lines. And that's a very controversial thing when you're talking about the anti-war left, but yeah, they need it. And, and. It's actually been fairly interesting. I've had quite a few people who are very anti-war their whole life, you know, because of Vietnam and Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, all the U.S. conflicts. But now they see a just war they agree with. This is not. It made very clear from the get, this is not what we've experienced the past 40, 50 years in warfare, or as far as they cause the right. thing. And so now they're like, oh, wait. And, and it is a change. It is a difference. And that's a good thing. I, I, I mean, unfortunately we live in a horrible world and violence is required to defend. Exactly. And so we can, and that's where, you know, just war theory comes, you know, and that's kind of what they meant the whole time. They just didn't realize it until they saw where they agreed. Right. Yeah. And it, it has helped change a lot of minds on that which has been a good thing um but it's kind of funny that like i work in drug policy and i have a side gig doing humanitarian support in ukraine and my side gig to my side gig is doing psychedelic policy in ukraine right it all just sort of happened that's great um have you felt it almost and i hesitate to use this word but since you really began the second part of your journey after the therapy and everything like that have you felt it in a way of a calling almost to help others or to get the word out for if you can help that veteran with the name who doesn't take his life today. I mean, I wouldn't call it a calling as much as a That's duty. Right. I hesitate. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I feel I have an obligation and a duty because, you know, in total, uh, MDMA clinical trials through MAPS, uh, round numbers, maybe 450 people have gone through it. Uh, veterans exploring treatment solutions. Uh, Marcus and Amber Capone, you know, do tremendous work. They've had about 600 people go through it. Like, there's not a lot of people that have been able to heal or had access to this because I have and I'm still here. I feel I have an obligation to fight that fight because others can't. Um, it's part of the reason I'm, I'm, I knew before I went over that on my last trip, I was going down to the front line and I genuinely didn't know what was going to happen, but I also knew that if I went, it proves to myself and to DOD and to a lot of other people how, granted, it's just me. I'm an anomaly. I get this, but, but. If it can work for one person, it can work for more than one person. And I would say that yours is a pretty extreme example of, it, of, of being it for being able to go back 
Yeah. You know, it wasn't like you were over there for just a couple of weeks. I know where you were stationed and you can feel free to probably fill in the details a little bit more, but it was it Mortar Alley or what was the name? Mortar Readerville in, in, in Balad. And then my last trip, I was down like Slovyansk, Lyman, Bakhmut area. Yeah. And that you can go back to any front line after that. Speaks high. Thing. You know, it, it was very interesting, but also it's something I knew that it needed to be done. It's also something I would never ask anybody to do right. unless I was willing to do it myself. And interestingly enough, I've had quite a few veterans who, you know, because it's not just that I went through the MDMA there. I'm also a combat veteran who has a skill set right. that, that makes me le at less of a risk for me and, and, and I know what I'm doing over there, et cetera. And so I've had a few other veterans who went through various psychedelic trials reach out to me and say, Hey, when you go back, let me know. I want to go with you. Nice. Um, as a matter of fact, I've been talking to Jesse Gold because he's going to be going over and speaking at the same conference. I'll be there in person. Right. Um, a lot of the people are like doing videos or Zoom calling in, but Jesse is, is my understanding from him is he's going over there. And I asked, do you want to go down east with me? He said, yeah. And I said, bring body armor and a helmet. Um, I mean, I go back and forth so much now. I just leave my body armor and shit there right. because that shit's heavy and yeah. traipsing in that crab across the Atlantic's pain in the yeah. ass. You know, how many people would this actually help? And those are different questions. And it, and honestly, if you can have a conversation with somebody who is either reluctant or has never heard about this, and it goes from does this work to how do we make this happen? Right. You know, that's the goal. Yeah. Great. And you're seeing that? Absolutely. Uh, I can, I, and it's actually really fun. Uh, you see it when you're in meeting. Uh, and actually, it was kind of interesting. A lot of the meetings I had uh, in Ukraine, specifically with the, the veterans organization, they'd heard something about it, but they didn't know anything about it. And in the beginning, they're like, this won't work in Ukraine. We can't do this, et cetera, et cetera. And then during the one hour conversation, it shifted from this isn't right for Ukraine this doesn't work to you. Okay. This is the minister we need to talk to. This is how, how our legal structure works and, and all these things. And, you know, it, it honestly puts a smile on my face, that's awesome. you know, cause a lot of this is education and that's where, you know, I rarely turn down media interviews and things like that. And I'll be honest. One of the things I'm hoping for is that we do get more veterans that go through this, that want to step up and speak. Any veterans listening to this, I will gladly help you learn how to do media and, and not be nervous and be able to, to talk about things because I've got a ton of media hits and we need more stories. We need different stories. Um, that also lets me step back and focus more on policy and less on media. Um, but it is... It, it is for all the veterans that are in this space. It's difficult because all of us get reached out to. Right. right. And, and, you know, then you find out that the guy you talked to took his life, you know? Yeah. And it, it takes an emotional toll, but that Every also, too. that also, you know, kind of hits the afterburners and, and you fight harder. Yeah. I've found the same similar motivation, not as, as direct as your experience, obviously, but, um, suicide has such a halo effect. Um, and a lasting one that yeah. people keep with them, the people you leave behind that they keep with you. So, um, and there's a statistic for every suicide, 130 people are affected. Wow. People All don't even realize that. It. Yeah. Everyone. You've been incredibly generous with your time. I applaud your effort. 
my wife and I, I can speak for her in this one case because she knew <laughs> I was meeting with you today. Uh, we thank you as veterans and as uh, folks who have found healing in similar methods um, from, from, uh, from those wounds that you tend to carry with you sometimes. And uh, your story has been an inspiration. You are an inspiration, which is Jack, you know, put this all together and asked us to find somebody that inspired us. You were the first one that uh, came up on the list here. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I have one last question for you. As a band, you know, we're well, getting together. Well, before you ask that question, yeah. I, I, I do want to say this to, to you and your wife, um, as well as the other veterans who may hear this. You're far stronger than you will ever give yourself credit for simply because you're still here. Same to you. Same to you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. My final question is, band, music guy, obviously. What's your favorite band? So I have, if, if, if we could go through my playlist sure. uh, afterwards. Let's do that. I, I have a really super eclectic yep. mix yep. of music in part because it depends on what it's for. Mm -hmm. um, I view music a lot of times as the soundtrack to my life. Yep. So it depends. So for example, um, when my dad died, uh, my chemical romance, Black Parade, was... And I, st I still listen to it, but how that song starts, it, it helped me heal. Uh, Five for Fighting has a bunch of different songs that I listen to for motivation. Also, like, there, you know, I listen to Symphony of the Devil um, from the Rolling Stones a lot of times on earbuds when I'm walking up to Capitol Hill. You know, I, like, I've got all this weird, <laughs> like, motivation music, depending on what I'm going to do. Um, you know, a song currently that speaks to me a lot is, uh, it's actually a five for fighting song, um, a hundred years. I'll have to check now. I'm yeah. familiar with that one. It, it's about, and basically it's, you've got a hundred years on this planet. What are you going to make? What, you know, they actually like five for fighting. They've got like three songs that I listen to in a row, uh, world, which has a line, you know, history starts. What kind of world do you want? History starts now. Um. As a matter of fact, when the caucus, when Jack Bergman and Luke Korea founded the caucus, I was fortunate enough to be, to right. be there for the press conference, you know, and I walked up to, to, to Congressman Bergman and I, what I said was history starts now. Oh, uh, and then Superman, cause I know this song is probably about being a father and, and I am a father. Oh, uh, but you know, there's a lot of things there. Like I didn't expect to be in this role. I didn't right. expect any of this. It, it, it's very strange and uncomfortable a lot of the time. Oh, but for about music, even lyrics, regardless of the person that wrote them, they said how, what they mean. All that matters is what they mean to the listener. So, but like when I want to go drive fast, I'll listen to like Ramstein or Pantera. So like I've got this giant full spectrum. <laughs> you know, I listen to every genre of music depending on. You know what it is. Awesome. You know it is kind of cool when you're ro rolling through freaking bomb crater roads in, in in Ukraine and you're playing, you know, Wagner's Flight of the Valkyries. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's just weird and fun. And then you've got this soundtrack. Absolutely, John. Thank you so much. Thank it's you. A real pleasure talking. Me too. Thank you. How are we doing, Jack? John. That was beautiful, guys. Thanks so much. Really. Okay, I guess it's singing our praises. Yeah. Good. Thank you. You did a great job. Right on, man. Well, we'll follow you up. I guess here. Uh, yeah, your first interview. My first <laughs> interview for sure. <laughs>
Oh, brilliant. Well done. Let's, uh, let's make a hit song. Yeah, let's make it. No worries. Yeah, for his, for his, for his soundtrack. Exactly. Exactly. Your next soundtrack is what he's Well, and that was actually leads to a question I had, which yeah. is when the song's all done and stuff, um, how I would be able to get like use rights and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get all that ironed out for Probably. sure. For sure. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks guys. I'll Take care. Money, Thanks. Thanks. Have a great gig. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. Distant worlds from a past life, they haunt me. Memories blurred from that time still find me. A shell of myself just trying to survive. enjoyed the song and the episode the song will be released next week will be available on all streaming platforms but you can already pre-save please support the artists by following them on social media and adding the song to any playlists you have this is a completely free show and you've listened this far so i'd really appreciate it if you could pay us back by clicking like and subscribe and follow at pod songs on social media platforms or subscribe to the newsletter podsongs.com for special updates or just tell the next person you see about this amazing show where musicians interview their idols 
and write a song about them. The songs are available for download from the Pod Songs website as well, which pays a lot more than the 0.00 whatever we get from Spotify. You can also email me at jack at podsongs.com to give feedback, suggest an artist and guest combos you'd like to hear, or just say hello. We're a listener-supported show, and I'd love to hear from you. A final thanks to my researchers, Dory Verbo and Rosa Marino, my producer, Maurizio Sanicola of Goldmine Records, and musicians, Massimino Vozza and Luigi Falcioni. The next episode will be out soon. In the meantime, you can listen to more amazing episodes in the archives. Until then, have a great day.